Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, Dame Anne Salmond joins Moana Maniapoto to discuss her 2017 book, Tears of Rangi, exploring how the worldviews of Māori and of Pākehā have intersected since first contact. Please welcome Anne Salmond and Moana Maniapoto. I'm liking this already, Damien. This is, this is such a privilege. I'm so thrilled because I read Dame Anne's book as I flew back from Taipei about 48 hours ago. I was under pressure because it's quite a big, fat book. Um, and, um, and, I, and I only turned my light off because everyone was giving me the evils because it is one of the most engaging books I've read. And I just want to see a show of hands. Who's read this book? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you might be lucky because it could be on sale here. <laughs> Um, you are indeed one of our most prolific writers and, and, and academics and, and you have been able to give us a lot of context to um, some of the historical context, some of the discussions that are happen, happening nowadays. I just want to sort of like poke back into the past and say, how did you get this enthusiasm and passion for what you're doing, which has been your life's work as a historian and writer? Well, I think I, I grew up in Gisborne on the East Coast in the Tate Afferty, and um, I, I suppose like every other kid that grew up on the coast, uh, you know, our population there has always been about half and half Māori and, and Pākehā, but at the same time when I was a kid, there was a big gap, actually. I think people met up on the farms and they met up at school, but people didn't socialise a heck of a lot across those kind of, that divide between Māori and, and Pākehā. And what happened to me was that I... Um, it was interesting. I, I got a, when I was in my last year at high school, I got one of those field scholarships to go to the States. And my mum was really close friends with uh, Lorna Nutter, uh, Lady Lorna Nutter, that's Henry's wife, and yes. Peggy, <coughs> Peggy Kowa. And, um, and so because I got the scholarship and I was, what, 16, <laughs> and, and was going to the States, and they said, well, you know, do, learn something about your own country before you go and perhaps, you know some things that you can do because you're probably going to have to give quite a few talks. Mm. So um, mum went and asked Lorna and Peggy if they would teach me a couple of action songs. 
And like these were the, you know, taught directly by Apirana, mm. like these exponents of, of, of uh, both Te Reo and Kapahaka teaching me. You're the... quite fresh then, aren't you? No, no, no. <laughs> the, the point was, I mean, they looked at me and I'm, I'm sure they were very amused and kind of, but anyway, they did teach me. And, and the, the thing that I just was so impressed with them because they were these regal, both of them, these really regal, uh, very generous, elegant women. And I thought, wow, you know, this is, I was, yeah, I was very, very impressed with them. And so, anyway, I went to the States and did the things you do as a young kid over there. And it was the time of JFK and um, yeah, Camelot and all of that. Um, but at the end, again, we were traveling in a bus, and then we ended up, I ended up in California for about a month, and Timmy Tehehu was there too. Was he? Yeah. And so my, we were... We, my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he would have been a hit over there. Yeah, well, he was. Mr. Yeah, Sociable. Yeah, Mr. Sociable. And, and Married to Georgina Tehehu. Yeah, gorgeous guy. And so, anyway, so I, when I came home, I decided that, um, you know, every talk I'd given... I realised I knew absolutely nothing about Te Ao Māori. I mean, I just felt so stupid, actually. Mm. And so I decided when I came home to Gizzi, I would learn, um, start to learn Te Reo. So that's how it started. And, um, and then I met, you know, I met people in Gisborne who were teaching me, um, George Marsden, mm. um, Pare Marsden. And then I went to university and joined the Māori Club and started studying te reo uh, with people like Pat Hoiapa and yes. Hugh Kafaru and all that lot. And for me, it was just this revelation. It was like, how come I've grown up in this country and I know absolutely nothing about these people really and this world? Mm. And so as soon as I sort of hopped into it, I kind of thought, oh, this, this is just... And, and what was the response of, of Māori when you were hopping into it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Do they sort of go like... What's going on here? You know, what was, what was that like? Well, it was like 1960, whatever, you know, like it was a long, long time ago and it wasn't happening a lot at that point. Mm. It wasn't as if they had parties sort of hopping in in every five yeah. seconds, you know, yeah. back then. Um, it was, I was a bit of a oddity, I suppose. And so people were very tolerant and kind of, yeah, very, very nice. Very, um, they could see I was really passionately interested, I think. And, and so people started to teach me stuff. And um, when I got to Varsity, and then I met Edu Edu and Ambedia Sterling. Yes. But also my own generation in Māori Club. You know, that was a lot of really fantastic people. You had some heavyweights in your Māori Club, eh? Yeah, well, Sid and Hannah, Jackson, yeah. Wurden were in there. Donna was Donna Watere. Yeah. Um, just a whole, you know, bunch of people. Roy Mata and Rauru Kirikiri were really good friends of mine. Um, uh, Maxine Rewati, as she then was, now yes. Nutter. Yes. So these were, uh, but it was a sort of apolitical time then. You know, it wasn't yeah. it, in the in was the this 60s. in the 70s, 60s? 60s, yeah. Mm. Mm. It wasn't until... The 70s kind of kicked in a bit more, eh? Yeah. In the 70s then, bang, it was all on. So how, what was your role then? In the 70s? Yeah, when, when all the activism was going on in Ngā and yeah. the 70s was very much an era of... You know, Bastion Point, Raglan, Māori mm, mm. uh, Land March, uh, um, Waitangi Tribunal. So, what was what was your role? You know, as a you'd been a, you'd be um, you'd graduated by then, right? Yeah, yeah. I went away to the states and did a PhD quite quickly because I'd met my husband just before I left. So I yeah. I did it um, pretty fast and came back. But the 
the idea was, I mean, what happened was that Eruera actually decided, um, he, he suggested that I, I do my PhD on marae mm. because he said that, um, you know, I, he thought I was getting a reasonable education in Māori studies, but he really, he said to me at, at a point um, that if you're really interested in te ao Māori, then the marae is a university for you now, is what he said. And so he said uh, he and our media offered to take me mm. to Hui um, if, if I did my PhD on that. So that's what happened. So I yes. spent a couple of years um, on the road. I had a little blue V-dub, and they'd ring up, and they'd say, oh, there's a Hui on. You know. And there'd be a lot of that. There was a lot. Yeah, yeah. there'd be a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And Tangi as well, eh? And Tangi, yeah. Be, yeah. 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 It wasn't just busy. Tangi, though. It was all sorts. It mm. was... Um, and we went to all these places, you know, like Marokopa and... Uh, I've never heard of that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's one of, it was one of the pokai. Uh, yeah. Went to all these nooks and crannies of the country where, unless you were going with people like that, and he was a great orator. He's one of the great orators <coughs> of his generation and a real wānanga expert. Mm. And so he was in great demand, you know, for speaking at Marae, mm. at Hui. And so we'd rock up and... And Edward, he, he thought it was really funny because I'd learned a bit some Māori by then. He sort of, tiki na mai ngā And I would go and grab the bags and they'd all look at me and say, who? I wonder which, you know, which of the boys had that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thought I must have been one of the whānau. But, yes. But when they realised I was Pākehā, they thought it was pretty amusing, actually. Yes. His son's a bit of a gun speaker too, eh? Is this Kep you're thinking yeah. of? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, fantastic. Amazing family, the Sterling family. Amazing family. So, um, I mean, that, uh, that was, I, I guess in a way, your life has been a kind of a, uh, an example of some of the things that you've talked about in your books. You talk a lot about uh, um, the two worlds coming together and the, and, the, and the plurality of thinking and how they... They blend in, in, in some ways, and, and your, the whole thesis of your book, in my understanding, was how these two cultures came together, and they had their own way of thinking, um, but there was a kind of a perception that they would, from Māori, definitely, that they would be able to operate in a parallel way mm. that wasn't going to compromise either, either system. That's what, that's what I found quite fascinating about how people like Hongi Hika and um, those elders um, thought that this lot had their worldview, this lot had their reality. That's all right, we can all coexist. So could you explain to, to, uh, to us what was the thinking that came with Cook? What kind of mind space were they in back in those days? And well, I, maybe I'll just answer it because I didn't finish, Sorry. really, I didn't... Um, tell you about what happened later in the 70s, and I probably should do Sorry. that, because, no, no, it was, it was, so after doing this, um, going on these marae with, with Eruera and our media, and because travelling in the car like that, you know, they were long trips often, mm. and Eruera would be rehearsing in his mind what he would say, and he would, you know, be rehearsing tauparapara, and Nanny would be telling stories, and, you know, when we got bored in the car and so on, and, um, Travelling around with Eruera and going to Marae with those two was really, it really was like another world. It really was. For mm. me, it was this huge adventure where we'd land up in these places and you'd be in the house at night and people would be talking long into the night in Māori and the local geographies and the ancestors and 
the big up of the day would be being argued out on the marae. And then, so that was, you know, for me, that was like immersion of a kind that was such a privilege. Mm. You know, it was like so... But then what happened, as, as you're saying, is, you know, we got the land march, we got Raglan, we got mm. Bastion Point, and Eruera was very involved in all of that. He was kind of a, a kaumātua from Ngā Tamatoa. Mm. And so... Um, and these were my friends from Varsity. Yes. So, of course, you know, I was in the thick of all of that. Mm. And it was an interesting place to be as a Pāke at that time, even though they were my mates, you know. It was like, you know, you know, Hannah talking about Killer White and stuff like that and this sort of thing. And, but these were my friends from Varsity. Yes. And by then, I think I was just so engaged and I had so many close relationships with people that it was... And people were saying, oh, Pākehā should get out of this area and so on. But I really, I just couldn't, you know. Like it was, how do you do that when some of the people you love the most in the world are in that? And so, you know, I was on the landmark alongside the old people and those kinds of experiences. So when you were asking me about this business of two, these two different dimensions of reality, which is mm. what I'm writing about, you're right. I mean, I was living... Hmm. And at times in the 70s, in the mid to later 70s, it was quite agonising sometimes. You can imagine. I mean, it was. Um, there were moments when you you just had to sit there and think, well, what the hell am I doing? You know, this is. Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right things? But at the same time, you know, the, the old Edward and our media were very much there, and hmm. they weren't going anywhere, and you know. We were very, very close, and so I guess I wasn't either. Because I remember um, <clears throat> I married into the Jackson family at yeah. one, one stage, yes. and um, yes. and I was so fortunate because mm. um, Sid became very much a, a very close friend and mm. mentor to me. Um, and and I remember at some stage they, you know, he he used to say, well, you know. Um, Parkers, stop writing about us. We mm. need our own people to write our own stories. Um, so this would have been in the eighties. Mm. Um, uh, so how how did how was the feeling from um, Parker academics and writers to that kind of a corridor back then? Well, that was really challenging, you know. And I think a lot of people just jumped out at that point and yeah. said, "This is just you know too hot to handle." And um, I suppose. Because what I ended up doing after writing the book Hui, which was about our experiences on Marae, is that our media had been, you know, she was a fantastic raconteur, wonderful storyteller. And that's how we entertained ourselves on a lot of those long trips. And she decided, and it was her idea actually, that um, her mate Mrs Hoft, who wrote a, a little book called uh, The Tale of the Fish, mm. came round one day when we, I was at our media street at their house and... Um, and had this book that she'd, she'd written about her life up, up north. And she showed our media, and the media said to me afterwards, she, she looked at me and she said, Auntie, I think we could do a bigger one than that. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I thought, actually, she's such a fantastic storyteller. Yes. You know? yeah. And so that's what happened. So I hopped into her kind of... And that was very... It's a very intimate thing to, uh, to write a book about someone's life that you already know pretty well, but... You, there's lots of things you don't talk about. Hmm. And, then, um, and then, of course, Edwida decided shortly afterwards, or you know, a while afterwards, that it was time to do his book, 
which was Eruera, Teachings of a Māori Elder. So during that period, I guess what I was doing was being much more of a listener and, um, and then trying to be a, I don't know, to let their stories be shared. Yes, yeah. So that was the kind of response. I don't know whether it was because of the things that people were saying so much. It was just that their lives were so extraordinary yeah. and I thought it would be great if other New Zealanders could have somewhat glimmering of what it was like to be in their skins, I suppose. Mm, mm. Something like that. Yeah. I know. Uh, my partner Toby and I did some um, documentaries uh, in 1999, 2000, interviewing some elders who were 97, you know, in that age group. So mm. coming from the era of um, arranged marriages, we mm. interviewed a, a woman who was 97 who she when she when she was a baby and delivered by um, the leader of our tribe two photo tour uh, or his wife actually um, the wife declared that a, a boy that was born on the same day would they'd be married that was mm. that was it really and when they get to 16 so uh, so we're talking to this elderly woman about this and um, and so the first day that she meets her husband is on her wedding day. You know, and uh, and I and we were going. Oh, what was that like? She's like, oh, you know. She's saying it in Maori. Oh, he kite oki ai, um, pa. You know, she quite liked the look of him. Uh, and then, um, and they had a really wonderful marriage. And the question was, we asked them a question like, well, did you ever think, hey, I'm not going to be, you know, you're not going to jack my husband up for me? It just never crossed their minds to challenge that. When her husband died years later, she married the brother. Uh, and that was quite a custom too to keep the, the kids in the whānau. So those stories that you captured, and then we were lucky on the cusp to capture stories from another world. Um, you know, it is such a privilege, isn't it? And you look back and you think, wow, what a different way of looking at the world. And you know, mm. well, I, I really, you know, I really loved those two, and they were, you know, godparents to our kids, and named them, and all of that. It was, it was a really close relationship, but. When you sit down and listen to somebody for you know days on end about their life as you've mm. you've done, and Nanny, for example, talking about when she exactly that the Tomo marriage, and uh, she was tricked, you know, she was given this racehorse to ride to Rokokore, and the idea was they were going up to the, a big exhibition up in Auckland, but when they got to Rokokore, it turned out she was being taken there to marry Edwira. Oh, okay, right. And um, and she <laughs> took one look at him, and she she said. Um, that she didn't, she didn't fancy him because he had hair like kinna, he had quite straight hair. Yes. And, and his brother, Tai Kore Kore, who was the older one, he had curly hair and she... She thought he looked all right. Yeah, but, but they, got locked, they got locked in the bedroom. I mean, it was like, you know, when she was telling me... And it was really, I mean, it was a very emotional... Yeah. And I don't know how you sort of... So when we're talking about these different worlds... Um, in a way, you can't, you know, I'm a scholar, but there's a lot of things you can't learn with your mind. You've got to learn them through the skin. Mm -hmm. And I don't think without those experiences of travelling around with Edwira, for example, and seeing what it's like being a... He was a, quite a tohunga type. Mm -hmm. So all sorts of stuff would happen, and you'd think, God, how can that be happening? Um, you know, am I going mad or what? So it, awaken yeah. your senses a little bit. Yeah, well, it's very much like that, and... Um, and also because you really, because you do love people, you know, if you really care about them, then um, 
you can learn things that otherwise probably would remain completely perplexing. Mm. Mm. Don't know, but... So, you know, in, in your book... <laughs> yes, so let's talk about the book. But the book is sort of, I in love a the way, book. it's sort of all this... Yeah. I love the characters in it. They're yeah. so... Um, because, uh, as I mentioned, I mentioned to Anne before, that coming from Te Arawa, um, some of you might have driven um, past one of the lakes there, and there's a tree there, and there's... This, there was a mark called Hongi's Track, and we used to always drive past it and go, Hongi, Hongi. <laughs> Never liked him. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, my um, father's brother married a woman from up north, and my grandmother was horrified because she didn't like those northerners. She was okay about dad marrying a Parker, no drama there, but marrying someone from Hongi's Fano, you know, from that tribe was. Just a no-no because, you know, mm. his lot came down and um, they were, um, you know, they, they created havoc. So it was it was an insight for me to read about Hongi and understand uh, a little bit more about this person. You brought him to life for me. Um, quite an extraordinary man in so many ways, you know, his uh, his way of thinking, his... his um, and, and his curiosity, but his clarity about what it was, about the integrity of who he was and, and his culture. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about, speak a little bit about him and what you, you know mm. of him? Yeah, well, the reason, I kind of, the reason I kind of wrote the book was because people talk all the time about worldviews, as though there's one world but just different views of it. Mm. And the kind of proposition that I'm exploring in the book is that perhaps actually that's not the case. Mm. Maybe we have a kind of multiverse rather than a universe, you know. There are these different realities and different experiences of, of life that... Um, and that early period of Hungi and Thomas Kendall, the reason I sort of went there was I thought, well, that's when it was so stark and it was so, like, yes. unmediated. You know, you have somebody like Hungi, a great leader of his own people... A military leader, um, but also latterly a tohunga in the end, um, and Thomas Kendall, who we talked about briefly just before. And here were these these people trying to, without, you know, having to learn each other's languages from scratch. So yep. you know, there's no bridge there, um, no help really, and yet they were dealing with each other as friends. Those two um, over a, quite a long period, and so with Hungi. Hongi's this, because um, it's the same, you know, on the East Coast, people really don't like him either. Edward mm. used to tell me lots of stories about Hongi on the coast and the muskets coming down. And, but you, you said in the book that he was quite a, um, a gentle, quiet, well, that, mm. that, that was observed. He was this great warlord in a way, was quite a gentle, quiet chap in real life until he sort of moved into the war zone. Hey. Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what all the um, Europeans who met him said. Yeah. They, they said he was he was very impressive. Yes. And he was uh, he was a carver as well, and um, a very very cl- you know, highly intelligent, very curious, inquiring kind of man. And he was very curious about these incoming Europeans, and he wanted to sort of check them out, which is why he ended up going to see King George in Britain yes. with with Thomas Kendall. And um, the the fascinating thing about that was. You know, he had this history, which was, there was some tragedy there, you know, with the, what had happened to his sister, for example, yes. and there, there had been some 
horrific losses in his own family that he felt honour-bound because of mana to rebalance and, and to try and kind of get that equilibrium yes. back for yes. the mana of his own people. And so part of the reason for going to Britain was to try and get guns. There's no doubt about that. But he was also very curious about what these people were like when they were back in their own home society. So off he went with Kendall. And, you know, he, they went to Cambridge, uh, helped Professor Lee, Samuel Lee, write the first grammar of Māori, and it's a good one, actually. Um, uh, met, you know, all sorts of people in high society and then was taken down to London and met King George in Carlton House and was treated and, you know, the engagement was a very equal one. Now, I, th I think one of the points that Anne made in her book that, that was fascinating with me was that when the missionaries came across and Marsden came across, um, you know, there were these traditions in place, um, um, kaitangata, or, you know, translated as cannibalism, um, polygamy, mm -hmm. um, and and the missionaries, uh, Marsden would sort of say, well, you know, guys, this is not really on, um, uh, you know, God God wouldn't approve of that, and would get really angry, and, and, and the, the Māori at the time were kind of like, no, God's not angry. We're all good, you know. <laughs> what was I? Yeah. Your God might be angry. Yeah, your God's angry. Ours but, is fine. But, you know. but I love the rationalisations too. Like, so you guys are in New Zealand now, so our God's, so, you know, just chill out. Yeah. Basically, yeah, was basically, I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, they had these fantastic debates. And oh, I love those debates. Yeah, well, and the. Uh, and it's very like, you know, the thing I liked about it was very like being with Edward and listening to some of those top orators having a good go on the marae. Yes. And so there they were sort of interrogating Marsden on theology. Mm. And, you know, basically he was telling them the stories of Adam and Eve and they were telling him the stories of Maui and fishing yes. up the islands. And, and, um, and he would tell them about hellfire and they'd say, well, you know, it's a shame you're going to get burnt, but, you know. <laughs> we're all good. You know, we're good. Our, our atua. Yeah. So it was very much like, you know, you guys, it's fine for you to believe what you want to believe. That's good for you. Yes. But we've got our own beliefs and we've got our own ways of doing things. But then when they got to, when Hungi got to London, of course, and he met up with King George, um, George at that time had just ascended to the throne and he was in the throes of trying to divorce his wife, Queen Charlotte. And she'd had gone and had a, a raging affair and taken off to London. And, you know, Hungi Hika has been lectured about the fact he has multiple wives mm. by Marsden and so yes. on and told that he has to cast them off and not to fight because fighting is a really bad thing. And yes. he was staying with the guy who'd been three or four times mayor of Cambridge who commanded the Cambridge volunteers in the Napoleonic Wars. Yes. And he began to realise that half the stuff that the missionaries had been telling him was not exactly what was going on at yes. in, in, Europe, in Britain. Yes. So that there was, you know, King... And they end, ended up... Um, so Hungi was telling King George that he had no problems with his three wives and, you know, more or less commiserating with him <laughs> the problems he was having with Queen Charlotte. And, and, then the kind of, <laughs> and then the kind of light went on too yeah. because he was, <laughs> Hungi was starting to join the dots. Like, hang on, Marsden's been telling me, you, you know, God won't like this and our king, our king won't like this. And he gets over and he hooks up with the king and he's thinking, we're getting on great guns. And doesn't he ask the king... You know, your missionaries have been telling us one thing here. Yeah. And King goes, I, I don't actually know them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know them. And so then he's starting to think, hey, they're not that high up the food chain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. hey. yeah, exactly. So everything switched when he went back. 
Yeah. But yeah. he got given the nice um, armour. Yeah, chain, chain mail. Oh, yeah, is that what you call it? Chain yeah. mail. Yeah. yeah, it was chain mail because there's actually um, some armour in Auckland Museum, which is not Hongi's armour. It says so on the label, but he was given chain mail. It wasn't armour. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the chain mail and a helmet saved his life on a number of occasions in subsequent battles. And, and so when that was actually stolen from him, and after that, that's when he got shot, and yes. he lost his boy, Hare Hongi, yes. uh, Charlie. He lost his son, which broke his heart. So, you know, you, you see the humanity of him when he's... the. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there was an exchange with the missionaries where they're trying to tell him to give up fighting. Mm, mm. And he's saying, but my heart is hard, you know. Basically, I yes. can't, you know. I've, yeah. I've lost Charlie. I've lost my boy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that whole thing of mana, of having to balance things. Yes. Um, and also that he, um, he, he went over there... He saw how it all rolled in England with the king and he saw, uh, and, and there was this that amazing thing where that woman went up to him and touched all the, his face, his muko and all that, you know, and he just, that was traumatic for him that someone could do that, you know. Uh, her not knowing, of course, and probably thinking he was an exhibit of some sort, you know, that kind of yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah. But he saw all that and then he came back and then it's kind of like he just... He thought, yeah, that's how they roll. I'm just going back into being yeah. Māori. Totally, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, exactly that. And and so, you know, the things that happened that really upset your whānau and upset eruiras, you mm. know, with the guns and so on and rampaging around and getting utu. But in a way, because of guns, because of the muskets, that sort of spiralled out of control as well. Mm. You can see when you're... Um, seeing the early battles where they were fighting mainly with traditional weapons with Tayaha and, and Mere and so on, not many people got killed. A lot yes, of, there was a lot yes. of ritual about those. Kind of be a lot of, okay, there's a couple down, then that's good. Yeah, yeah. We're sorted. We got that, yeah, we yeah. balanced it up. Yeah. Queer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas with guns, well, you could have, you know, you could blaze away and you'd kill a lot of people mm. at a distance. Mm. And I think everything just went haywire. So a lot of people think that Māori were very, you know, there's this kind of talk back stereotype about the, the violent Māori who were always fighting. And what people don't realise was that that period of early contact was quite atypical because muskets had come in and people could. It, it upset all those balances, I think. It just all spun out of control. And in the end, it kind of, you know, the thing that's... I call the, the last chapter Decline and Fall on that whole story because it was both Hungi finding, you know, he, he got shot eventually... He lost his son. Mm. Um, he was still a, a great tohunga, uh, but life had unravelled for him. I think I think it was a very chaotic, very turbulent time for mm. Māori. Mm. Everything seemed to be all over the place and up in the air, very hard to live through, I think. But for Kendall, it was the same. Yes, Kendall, I found him a little bit like... A, I think he'd be a good Sunday night theatre kind of a character. He was a little bit tortured... Came over as a kind of a, a teacher missionary sort of type. What, what was his background? Well, he'd been a draper and things like that. So, so he'd been, but he was um, chosen to be a missionary. He was he, he, he came out to New Zealand, obviously inspired by the thought of saving Converting. the savages, yes, mm -hmm. and all that. But um, and he's you know he 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 talks like that and he writes like that um, early on. But then something happened to him, and I can kind of relate to it because I think in a way you know he he, he started to learn the real. Mm. And it got into him, mm. and it changed him, and it made him feel, and he became very, he talked about Māori philosophy as sublime, for example. 
Um, and he really in, inquired into the Toparapara, he inquired into the stories of the origins of people and um, and he collected carvings and sent them back to the Church Missionary Society in, in London, trying to convince them that these people need to be taken seriously mm. and that their philosophies have got something really powerful about them. But, of course, for them, that was him going native. He went a bit native there, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you yep. could see him in his correspondence that he, he was actually, he was very torn. He yes. was like... Um, Oh, oh, oh my God, I'm getting a bit too native here. I might be committing sins. But, you know, they're so fabulous. And Hongi, Hongi yeah. I love Hongi. Oh, he's a bit of a killer when he's, on, when he's having a bad day. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they were really quite close, yeah. those two. Yeah. yeah, well, the thing about Hongi is that he always called um, Kendall his hua. I mean, he yeah. was very loyal. And you can sort of see, even though... He'd given up on, you know, the Church Missionary Society yeah, in London, liked, for example. Yeah, he liked Kendall, eh? Yeah, he, 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 he was still very loyal, loyal to him right to the end, pretty much. Mm. But I think Kendall, Kendall was just, um, you know, he had these things when he, oh, I'm a sinful worm, and, you oh, know, no. he was like totally... He tortured. Oh. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And then, and he got chucked out of the mission, and but he, he kept on, you know, studying the real... Um, yeah, he loved it. And so the guy that came to convert, in a way, got converted, yes. at least for a and while. And he ended up yeah. in South America or somewhere weird, did he? Yeah. yeah. That was a really, really weird ending. I wanted to know what happened. How come they never really had this big farewell, him and Hongi? It was kind yeah. of like, oh, he just went there and he was here. And it's like, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, the notions of um, leadership were really different too then. And you said in your book how um, kind of... You know, like the the missionaries always were quite keen on having like one in charge in New Zealand, because that would mean then you could have one in charge in in um, England, and that would make it very very easy. But you know, the Maori kept saying, "Oh, there's like we've got untold and we've got untold kings yeah. here," and you know, it looks really nice that you've got one over there. That would be really handy, but we've <laughs> got too many. Um, and then they kept trying to talk to, to different leaders about, you know, perhaps you would be the one. And the leaders kept saying, "Well, actually, no one really takes much um, notice of us when there's not a war on." Or certain certain conditions, we're kind of top dog, mm. and then other times, well, you know, people can take us or leave us. That was kind of a, a crude summary of yeah. the sort of leadership. Yeah, well, uh, Marsden difference. did. Yeah, he did try and talk Hongi into setting himself up as a king, and Hongi said, "Well, forget it. I mean, mm. as you say, unless we're on a toa, uh, they basically are not going to listen to me." And everybody else told Marsden that as well. And in a way, you know, I, I sort of. Um, in the book, try and move towards the Declaration of Independence mm. and the signing of the treaty, because um, what you can see in there is that it was Queen Victoria on the one hand of the treaty, and then it was all these different rangatira on yep. the other side, tino rangatira tanga, that whole proposition that they would re retain that absolute leadership of their own, you know, their own places. Domains, yeah. And, um, but it was plural leadership. Mm. And had to be like that. And you can see in the debates, you know, when they're all standing up and, and t debating about the treaty, um, just how important, say, for example, Patiwone and um, Wakanene were in the Hokianga, but when they're sitting in Waitangi, well, then it was the locals that had the yes. final say, for example. Yes. Yeah. So um, in, the, in the book, you, you talk about the significance of the decision. Is it Te Paparahi or... Uh, 
No, the one up north. Hmm. The Waitangi Tribunal kind of um, declaration or reaffirmation that sovereignty wasn't um, ceded. ceded. Um, and from everything that you've, all the all the cordial that you've collected from the, the different um, Māori leaders back in that time, it was very clear that that was one fear that they had was that the British were going to try and take their sovereignty, take over. Mm. Um, so quite inconceivable, given the, that that Māori outnumbered Pākehā, that sovereignty would have been handed over in the treaty, eh? in that signing, that whole ceremony. Yeah, well, when I was writing the book, I, tr I decided that I would try and do this thing because I, I love the idea of the spiral of space-time, mm. and you could see that coming out in some of the things I was writing about. That, um, and I could, moving around with Edward, for example, you know, one minute he'd be kind of, you know, talking about the future of New Zealand, the next minute he'd be talking about one of his ancestors. Yes. And as if they were in the room. And so that, that being able to just go back to the ancestral source and then spiral out into the future. And I decided to try and write the book that way. So... The book, the chapters often start with something yes. that's happening right in the present or just yeah. recently, and then they zoom back. So the, the whole thing on the treaty, um, I got quite involved with that claim, and in the Murifenua land claim, uh, right at the beginning of the treaty process, Meri Meri Penfold and I and Cleve Barlow were asked to write an opinion for the tribunal about what the rangatira might have thought when they signed the treaty. And we were kind of asked... Um, because I was a, I'm a, trained as a linguist, and, and Cleve was a linguist as well, and Mere was like one of the best, you know, beautiful native speakers, speaker. Yeah. And so we did a big study of each of the clauses in the treaty um, for the Murifenua land claim. And we, our advice to the tribunal was that we didn't believe that um, the treaty ceded sovereignty, the treaty in Māori ceded sovereignty. Mm. It doesn't. Yes. I mean, it's just, if you're reading and the treaty... And all the conversation was in Māori. Yeah. It wasn't in English... Yeah. Well, the key, po I guess one key point, there's many, but um, that kawana tanga for Māori in that period meant it was the state of having a governor, mm. like kingi tangas, like sovereignty, having a king. Um, and kawana tanga is the name kawana, governor, and they met a lot of governors. Yes. So they knew who these guys were that stayed with them and talked to them. And, and that they weren't the top dog. No, yeah, they were the, the king. If you wanted to translate sovereignty in the treaty, you should have said kingi tanga mm. or something like mana. Mm. But, um, you know, Williams chose kāwanatanga, and for Māori there's no doubt that was a step down. And, yeah. they, and the debates are all about, shall we have a governor or not? Yes. You know, governor, are you going to come? And then in which case, I'll go and be a governor in your country. And it was, the debates are all about that. Yes. So we concluded then and gave the advice to the tribunal, but it wasn't very convenient at that time, that mm. advice. And so it sort of got kind of parked off. And... Um, and then when they had the tribunal hearing about the treaty itself, then they asked um, me to kind of refresh that, that uh, submission. So I talk about that. In the, and it's so interesting because Eddie Mahenari, for example, who kind of led a lot of what Ngāti Hine had to say to the tribunal about the treaty, he made the point about Hongihika going to London, being treated by King yes. George as an equal. Mm. And he said, that's what we expected. That's what our ancestors expected Rangatira ki te rangatira, ariki ki te ariki. Um, you know, like with like, equal with equal. That's what we expected out of the treaty. And I think there's no doubt if you read the treaty in Māori, that's exactly what mm. it kind of foreshadowed. Because if it wasn't, then we wouldn't have had these um, tremendous number of battles in, in, 
on the battlegrounds, in the courts, at the United Nations, mm. on the streets ever since. We're still grappling with this. Yeah. And um, so, but I think what I was trying to do in that part of the book, because the book's in sort of in two parts in a way, isn't yes. it? And so there's this part which is a historical narrative but spiralling into the present and future a lot, was just to get people to see something about what that world was like at that time and some of the key participants in it so that when you come to the section on the treaty, you've got some sense of the context in which it was negotiated and signed um, because I think it really matters that people... Um, don't just kind of shoot from the hip about the treaty. A lot of people do. Mm. And they say the treaty means this and the treaty means that. And we had people standing up in the tribunal who couldn't speak Māori, who were acting as expert witnesses on mm. the treaty. And I kept thinking, well, how, you know, if we were in France and you had somebody talking about a French constitutional document in French yes. and you had someone that couldn't speak French standing up and being an expert about it, Mm. I think they would last like half a second. Yes, yes. You know, they wouldn't have even been put there. Yeah. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of an indictment that you know, even a couple of years ago, you still got people that can't speak Maori mm. who are being treated as though they're expert on the treaty. Mm. You can't be. It's impossible. Mm. So now we're. Um, uh, it's funny because I was interviewing Moana Jackson. Um, last week, who is an advocate of constitutional transformation and is, who um, conducted a number of hui that... And he's quite... He's quite um, for, for someone who's involved in quite a challenging field, which is to try and get us to rethink how we run the country, <laughs> he's quite perky about it, actually, because he, yes. said, he said he had, like, 10,000 people that turned up to all these hui that they ran. Uh, and that down in Wellington recently, um, he hosted hui where there were, um, you know, a thousand um, Pākehā students that came up and wanted to speak about constitutional transformation. There is an Asians for Tino Rangatira Tanga group that is um, running decolonisation workshops, so Charmaine and crew will be very happy that the take is carrying on. Um, so, uh, but it is a really fascinating area, and you talk about it in your book, um, about the spheres of influence and how um, uh, the, 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 the two circles of influence that were perceived by the treaty, uh, uh, you know, at that time by Rangatira, and then this kind of a relational sphere, hmm. which is what Moana talks about now in terms of, you know, the potential that we've got in looking at a new way of governance and constitution, constitutionality or whatever. What... what, what what are your thoughts now? We're in 2017 for the potential of that kind of a discussion to, you know, have some weight. Well, I think it's sort of happening on a lot of different fronts at once. It's not just about the constitution. I mean, I think, for example, you know, you and I are both passionate about fresh water mm. and heartbroken, you know, about what we see happening to, to rivers and springs and, and talking, you know, as we've both been doing, I'm sure, to people that are kind of confronting, just fighting desperately to save, you know, Waikoro Pupu, for example, mm. recently it was down there, those Pupu people tea. there. Yeah. Um, the river I grew up on, the Waimata, you know. Um, it's And so the Wanganui settlement, for example, and that Te Awatupua Act, which yes. I talk about in one of the chapters, mm. you know, where you're saying, well, let's as part of a treaty settlement, agree that a river is a legal being and it's, you know, it's a being. It's a living being. It's not just a kind of object yes. or a commodity mm. or something you go measure the water. A resource. 
a resource, yeah. It's not that. It's actually a living system. And, and for the Whanganui people, we're part of it, you know, like kuo te awa, ko te awa kuo. I'm the river and the river is me. And if the river's dying, I am too. Yes. And getting that into an act of parliament, where for the first time in the world, a river is recognised as a being with its own rights. Yes. You know, that's a huge... I mean, that's extraordinary. And I think that was picked up in India as well. Yeah, since. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Ganges, Ganges yeah. well, how they need it over there, don't they? <laughs> yes, exactly. And another, and another yeah, river yeah, in yeah. India. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, I mean, that was... In um, South America. I think people are starting to, you know, sort of... It, it's it's an, a fascinating example of those two worlds coming together and... Um, and using a, a contemporary um, construct of the law to, um, you know, wrap itself around this traditional way of looking at the river as an ancestor. Yeah, but in a way it's kind of also really cutting edge because one of the things that I've been um, sort of arguing for is to say... Um, so one of the roles that I'm playing at the moment is I'm a, a vice president of the Royal Society, so scientific community... The science of complex systems is actually really very like whakapapa. Mm. It's a relational philosophy where you're looking at all these different phenomena and these kind of living, these systems which are very dynamic and very complicated and the relationships between different elements in them. And nearly every wicked problem we've got, whether it's climate change or freshwater or biodiversity loss or whatever, at the heart of that is a very, very complicated set of interactions between different organisms, different life forms yes. that is going awry. And so Whakapapa, and the great thing for New Zealand is that we actually already have a philosophy in place here, which is, you know, from the soil, if you like, which enables us to think about a, a river as a living system with its people. And we've actually put it in law. Yeah. And the only thing is we've only done it for one river. <laughs> so, and, and yet when, as, as I travel around, I mean, you've just been doing this amazing... You've been singing for... Well, Can you tell, tell us a bit about that? Because I'd like oh. to know more about that. You've been doing a big thing. It's yeah, I did this, um, put together this um, a, a project, creative project called My Name is Moana. And it's about, it's really about the ocean. Our relation, started off our relationship with the ocean, our, our deteriorating relationship with the ocean that one time, at one time, all cultures had um, a very spiritual and cultural relationship with the ocean. We all had our different gods, whether they were Lear or Poseidon or Tangaroa or whatever. And then, you know, over the um, centuries, how that's kind of degraded in a way to where, you know, the oceans are in trouble. And then we kind of... Uh, so, uh, so when I went to um, toured um, Europe and had this experience of having my name... Um, trade, uh, my name was trademarked in Germany, so I couldn't use it. The name Moana, and um, so that's about when I started to realise how stupid things were getting, and also started to reflect on the the, the meaning behind my name. I, I sort of really never thought about it, um, and I guess that that was an example to me of how, you know, we are in, in an era where everything can be commodified, bought and sold. Um, so I wanted to create a creative um, project where we could reflect on our rela traditional relationship as New Zealanders and as Māori with our waterways and examine um, landmarks of people power movements. Since I was um, knee-high to a grasshopper in Invercargill in the 60s, 
to right through to to now. And when when you start to look back and track how um, how powerful uh, movements have been, you know, in the in the um, 60s even, and in um, uh, against dams and um, uh, South Africa. Uh, all the way through, you start to realise there have been these very powerful social movements in, in Aotearoa and that we are in another stage, I think, now of um, people power. So we, we, we put together all these songs and stories and we went around the country, we went down the West Coast and to Hukatika and Geraldine and places like that <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it because there's all these awesome little theatres and they're run by volunteers mainly from Britain, actually. <laughs> and I'd say, why? Why are you here? They go, because it's not England. Um, and there's these fantastic people that are out there and they, they came along to our concerts and I'd look out sometimes and I'd, I'd come out and hook a ticker and then I'd look out and i think, whoa, geez, you know, they're, they're an older audience and they're sitting, they all look like they just come off the farm. And then, and I'm thinking, I wonder how we're going to go down, you know. So we start singing and talking, and then about three quarters of the way through, when I'm saying, "Okay, you're going to hear a lot of blah 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 about the treaty during this election," that just ignore it all. Listen to what I'm saying. The treaty is your friend. It is your friend. And you know, we mm. talked about the, um, uh, all the values that, that the treaty represents and um, and Whanganui decision. Everybody was like. That makes bloody good sense to me, that whole thing. <laughs> you know? And then at the end, they're like, oh, go, girl, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and then they come up afterwards and they go, you know what's happening around here? There's a spring over here and they're trying to do this and do that. And, and we're in Taranaki and all the people stood up at the end and they, they did a waiata because of the ridiculous seabed mining um, thing that's going on down there. And every town I went to, I said to people, do you know, do you know in Alexandra that the, um, the government has just given the go-ahead for 50 million tonnes of seabed to be vacuumed up every year for 35 years. And everyone would go, they're just horrified. So, so th through that whole tour, what we realised was the outrage that people are feeling, Māori mm. um, and Pākehā, about this kind of world we're living in where everything is up for grabs, mm. um, this resource uh, kind of obsession, market economy obsession, and, and not just young people that are, um, that are fighting for a different way, but a lot of older people who remember a different way. So for me, it was really exciting, mm. you know, to to because we travel around the world. We go to you know Russia and Budapest and Taipei and all that, and um, to go back into um, our own country to small communities and find the ways that we connect with each other, and to find mm. out that there are values, Maori values, that are moving across. You know, into uh, into New, you know New Zealand sort of thinking and and transforming, as you've mentioned in your book. You know, like deep down in all cultures, I think there were kaitiaki tanga, whanaunga tanga, manaki tanga, those kinds of things. So it was really really exciting. Mm. And and I think that's you know it's just a different way. Like like there are different ways of kind of trying to connect with audiences and, and people through writing books, through art, through music, through a variety of um, things, and trying to find that synergy is what's really exciting. 
interested. And I, thought, I found I was quite hopeful after that. I came back quite perky. I did. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you yeah. feel Do you feel positive? Do you feel in a positive space? I do. I mean, I, I've I've been doing something a little bit like that. Only it's a really different medium, and that's working on this documentary. Yeah. Um, which is. Uh, for Māori TV and, and New Zealand On Air, and it's called Artifact, but what we've ended up doing is going again into all these parts of New Zealand, and it's the kind of pivot, if you like, or the springboard for each episode are various tongue or artefacts that have played a, an important role in either our past or in our future. Um, but in the process, we've gone to these places, and, um, for example, I was just in Mōhu in Golden Bay, and oh, again, I like it up there. Yeah, yeah, so that's where we started. It's lovely there, but it wasn't very golden. That was during those big floods when we kind of yeah. around Edgecombe. Yeah, it's lovely up there, isn't it? Yeah, well, Mapua. we yeah. So we, we flew we we flew in a helicopter to go and see where they'd found the um, the Anaweka waka, which is like a waka with a, a sea turtle carved on the hull, and it's made really? of motai, so it's it's a kiwi one, but it's very 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 early. And, and then we met the people, the, the, um, the local Tangata Whenua, and we were talking about Waikorupupu Springs as mm. well. And for them, it's all tied up. It's, it's their tanifa, the ancestral tanifa in the springs, and then they've got a bottling company that wants to take, you know, again, millions of gallons yes. and litres out of... Uh, the, they, they fear are going to deplete this very, very tapu spring for them. And, and they're saying to me the same thing. The local community are being fantastic with yeah. us. They're backing us and they're telling us, go for it, you know. Yeah. They're feeling almost as though uh, the iwi can say things on their behalf as well. Yes. And, and supporting them. And they said they had a, a do recently where they just called the local community and said, if you've got any tonga that you want to share with us, just bring them. And so they opened up this hall and they said, I don't know, a couple of hundred Tonga that people yep. had either fossicked off the farm or had turned up when they were ploughing or yep. somebody, somebody's ancestor had collected. And they came and they gave them all to the iwi. And it, wow. So there's stuff going on in the ground. Mm. I agree with you. I mean, you listen sometimes to the debates on television and, you know, you think, oh, my God. I think I'm a bit over the debates. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm a bit over it. I watched yeah, that one last night. I thought, yeah, I'm have some over fun, it. guys. You know, it's, it's for, on the ground it feels... I don't know. I think there's something going on in our country, whereas, as you say, there's a lot of... By process of osmosis, we're talking about water. You know, these values are sort of being shared. And there's elements in the, in the um, Western legacies. So, for example, the Humboldt brothers, people like that, that had this idea of the web of life in the early sciences. And, you know, Erasmus Darwin, Darwin's own notebooks talk about the tree of life and so on. And those philosophies are actually quite like whakapapa. Mm. So there's things that you can take out of the Western legacies that will resonate with Māori philosophy. And I think in our country we can do stuff which is absolutely world-leading. Yeah, we could be pioneering. Yeah. Well, we could, eh? Yeah. We could be pioneering. Yeah, exactly. hey. That's it, yeah. yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's yeah. quite exciting. And, and, and when you travel, you, you understand that people see us as... Um, they see New Zealand as pioneering. They certainly see um, Māori as, as pioneering in, in that indigenous space, and we have to be very careful that how we how we navigate that because, you know, we, uh, we, we just continually measure ourselves against ourselves uh, and continually have these discussions about, you know, how well we are doing and how well 
we are activating those values in, in a contemporary time. It's a very challenging time for all of us. But um, I think we don't have any option but to be hopeful and to kind of carry on, carry on, keep calm and carrying on, I think. <laughs> yeah. She's all on next weekend, isn't it? Thank God. So I think we've got a... I think, oh, my God, I'm sorry, I didn't do any questions. <laughs> so useless. Oh, there's the thing. Yeah, there it is. There's the thing. Sorry, love. <laughs> Why are we too much fun talking here? I'm actually loath to bring it to an end because I feel like we could sit here. We just, you know, there's just so much more to discuss, isn't there? But I feel really hopeful that we've come to the end so well on this hopeful note. I hope you've got to be yeah. hopeful. And um, I'd also like to thank the Tatarangi Dental Centre who uh, sponsored this session. Thank you very much to their support. And kia ora to Anne and Moana, that was a wonderful discussion and yeah, I, I cannot oh. encourage you enough. I've got specially to the, as Anne said, the book is in two halves and I've, when I got to the second half I was there with my pencil and my post-its. Oh, I never did that. Yeah. Oh, not yeah. in the book. Oh, yeah. oh, my, not in this oh, one, because this one's for sale. <laughs> <laughs> but on my own personal one, I, I've scrawled all the way through it, and I'm like, oh, oh listen, and I'll, I want to read bits out to anyone that will listen. So thank you so much for coming today. Thank it's you. been such a pleasure. Please thank Moana and Anne. Thank you. And, of course... this has been an archival recording from the going west writers festival thanks for listening